Now we're going to turn our attention to the scriptures um, because, mainly because everybody wants life. Everybody wants more life, longer life, fuller life, more meaningful life. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We want to love every word that God has spoken. And so we're uh, somewhere further than the middle of this series that's lasted years of just working our way through the Bible and asking what does this part of God's word have to say to us. We're calling it learning to love God's word. We are uh, halfway through the New Testament and we're almost finished with the Old Testament, six weeks to go. So there are 12 books at the end of the Old Testament called the Minor Prophets. The word minor doesn't mean less important, it means shorter. So the shorter prophetic books, we covered six of those last spring, and we'll get to the last six now. We're starting with the book of Nahum. The prophet Nahum uh, spoke about the guilt of a city called Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. So for those of you who have lost track of your ancient history, here's a map to help us out. Uh, The Assyrian Empire spanned uh, much of the Middle East. You'll see a a big star where Nineveh was, not too far from where modern-day Baghdad is located. And uh, so at at the time that uh, Nineveh, uh, Assyria was at its height of power, Nineveh was the capital city, and it was known as this brutal empire, an empire that had come under God's judgment. And uh, God is going to speak about their judgment in this three chapters of, of the book of Nahum and how his judgment relates to his goodness. So let's listen for that theme as we hear the scriptures read. We're going to hear the first eight verses of the book of Nahum today. Today's scripture passage is Nahum 1, 1 through 8, an oracle concerning Nineveh the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take a moment to pray together. Lord Jesus, pour out your spirit on the hearts of everyone who hears these words. 
Our hearts need an anchor to hold them still so that we won't wander away when you're trying to speak to us. Would you do that for us today, we pray, so that we might grow to know you more and have more life through you. Amen. I was in an airport in Dublin, Ireland um, last summer when airline travel was still a thing, right? And um, there was this scurry of activity behind me. You heard all the announcements starting to happen over the speakers and then these men dressed in black carrying large things, right? Big guns start running through the airport and um, tension is mounting around us and people are starting to freak out a little bit. Why? Because something was out of place. There was a bag sitting by itself. Something didn't look right. And it turned out to be no big deal. The guy in front of me at Starbucks had left his bag while he went to get a cup of coffee and he got a stern reminder that you can't do that in an airport because in an airport these days, in order to maintain safety, there, there, there has to be this sense of suspicion, uh, this being on your guard that, that something seems not right, something seems out of place, and you have to deal with it. Um, verse 2 of Nahum chapter 1 says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. He is avenging and wrathful. And it's possible for us to hear that and, and to have that sense of, Suspicion. Wait a minute, something's not right here. Something is out of place. Um, Christians don't believe this kind of thing, do we? Um, Good, loving people would never talk like that, and a good, loving God would never say anything like this, would he? And so if we think this is out of place, then we're on edge a bit, and, and our walls of suspicion that we might not be safe, start to go up. Let's take time to respond to that because this is a theme that we're going to hear as we work our way through the prophets. And uh, it's worth dealing with. We'll find that if we set our suspicion aside, God will help us to hear the grace in his words and hear what he says when he says that he is good. And because he's good, he makes a way to deal with people's guilt, both the guilt of his people and the guilt of those who mistreat his people. But but to make sense of this theme of God's judgment and wrath, we, we have to see that it's a part of the witness of all of Scripture, I say part of because it's not the only thing that the Bible talks about. It's not even the major thing that the Bible talks about. But it's part of the message that God has spoken to us in his world and it runs throughout the scriptures. So we'll start with a key passage that's found in in the book of Exodus. We're working our way toward this conclusion and we're going to get there by starting starting with the backstory, So we'll start in Exodus chapter 34. I'm going to rehearse a little bit of the story of the Old Testament just by way of review. The beginnings of the story 
of God's work through his people in the Old Testament. Start in the book of Genesis. We have God creating us. We have us running away from God. Peter used the phrase of galloping, hearts developing wings and flying away, uh, rejecting God and his goodness and love. And then God, in order to redeem the world, the beginnings of his redeeming work, he comes, he makes a promise that there will be a redeemer. He chooses a family, the family of Abraham, that becomes a nation, and he works through that family and eventually that nation to bring redemption into the world. That people winds up fleeing famine in the land of Israel. They're in Egypt, they are enslaved, and God delivers our people from slavery through the Exodus. And it's in that context that we find a story in Exodus chapter 34 about a golden calf. Moses is up on uh, the mountain getting God's words from him, commandments that God's people who have been redeemed from slavery are to live by. And don't forget that sequence. The redemption comes first and then follows the obedience. God doesn't redeem us because we obey. We obey because we love the God who has redeemed. And it's in that context as Moses is getting God's commandments on the top of the mountain that Aaron the priest is down below making a statue of a calf out of all these golden bracelets and earrings and necklaces that people have brought out of Egypt and they fashioned this calf and they worship it. And it's in response to that that God has a conversation with Moses And he says, Moses, I need you to know who I am, and this is who I am, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Hear the pain here. I am this kind of God who does not walk away from relationships so easily, so it hurts me. That just a few weeks after I redeemed my people from slavery, they are turning their backs and walking away. Moses, I need you to tell my people who I am. I am slow to anger. But the next verse, God says, I keep steadfast love for thousands. It probably refers to thousands of generations. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Tell my people what I am like. On the one hand, I am slow to anger. I got a long fuse. On the other hand, I cannot turn a blind eye when my people endanger one another. In August of this year, the BBC published an article recounting how 800 people worldwide had died trying fake COVID cures. Now, sadly, that number may be higher than 800 now, but in August, they documented 800 people around the world who had tried something or other to prevent or cure the coronavirus and had wound up dying instead. God is saying to us when he speaks about his judgment, And when he says, I will by no means clear the guilty, he's saying, you know, when you reject me, then your life is telling the people around you that it's okay to find life in some other way, some other God. You can find life in this little statue of a golden bull. 
And, and your life begins to send the signal that the cure to everything is found over there or over there or over there. And it's not. The cure to everything is found in me. I am the way to life. And when your life begins to send that signal to other people, you are guilty of leading people toward death, not toward life. You cannot tell people to cure themselves through something that will kill them. And I cannot turn a blind eye when that begins to happen. I can't stand by and ignore it. That makes sense to us, doesn't it? We wouldn't want, we wouldn't want to stand by and ignore that happening right now in our world. If someone says, stands up and says, you know, if, if, if you drink this, it'll cure you, when in fact it'll kill you, we would want to step in and do something about it. God is like that. He's slow to anger. He's full of grace and compassion and forgiveness. And he invites us to take refuge in his kindness and in his mercy. But if we won't take refuge in him, then we remain in our guilt. And he says, I will no, by no means clear the guilty who refuse to take refuge in me. Well, why start here? Why start in Exodus chapter 34? Well, the, the answer is this. In Nahum chapter 1, the prophet Nahum quotes part of Exodus chapter 34. You'll recognize some of the language as we get to Nahum uh, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We've got to put it in its framework. Where are we in the story? After beginnings, enslavement, Exodus, God establishes a king. We start with the first good king of Israel, David, and his son Solomon, but then quickly things go downhill from there, and Israel divides into two parts, a northern kingdom called Israel. It's a little confusing. You have one nation named Israel, and it splits into two parts, and one of those parts is called Israel. (laughs) The northern tribes become Israel, and two and a half southern tribes become Judah. And from that point forward, the biblical storyline bounces back and forth between these two groups of people, and they experience the same pattern. Israel more quickly, Judah more slowly, but centuries of rejecting God, centuries of trying the fake cures to find more life, better life, more abundant, longer life. Anywhere but God, find it in anything we can invent, anything we can mix God with and worship it instead of him. Israel did it, Judah did it for centuries. And so God had said at the time of the Exodus, I'm taking you to a promised land flowing with milk and honey. Everything you could want, beauty is going to flourish there. Goodness is going to flourish there. But I won't turn a blind eye. If you forget the God who gave you this place to thrive and live, and I will uproot you from that land, and I will take you into exile. The Assyrian Empire conquered the northern tribes, Israel, and took them into exile. And later in the story, the Babylonian Empire conquered Judah and took them into exile. When we read the book of Nahum, 
we are reading, we are reading about God's response to what Assyria did, enslaving Israel and taking them into exile. Wait, I thought, I thought Assyria did that because God was judging the rebellion of his people against him. The book of Nahum is God's way of saying, yes, I was dealing with the guilt of my people, but Assyria, the way you dealt with my people made you guilty too, and now I'm going to deal with your guilt. And so we come to this verse in Nahum chapter 1, verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger. We've heard that before. It was back in Exodus 34. And he's great in power. That's new. That wasn't in Exodus 34. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. That was back in Exodus 2. What is God saying here? He's saying, Nineveh, you have heard that I am slow to anger. Now, how have they heard that? The prophet Jonah, over 100 years before Nahum's time, went to Nineveh. And one of the things that you find written in Jonah, part of his message is, the Lord is slow to anger. (laughs) Jonah didn't like that. He wanted God to be very angry against Nineveh, the Assyrian Empire, because it's so ruthless and brutal. God, if you'll love the people of Nineveh, you're willing to love and forgive anybody. And God said, yeah, that's the point. Nineveh, you might have heard that I'm slow to anger. Well, many in Nineveh repented, and God didn't show his anger toward them. God makes a way to deal with guilt, even the guilt of those who are the enemies of his cause and the world. He calls us to come back to him and to find life in him. Nineveh, you've heard this message, I'm slow to anger, but the only language you know is power. Previous generations in Nineveh repented, but now your attitude is one that says we're so powerful nobody can find us guilty. We can do whatever we want to whomever we want, and we are the gods on this earth, and no one will hold us accountable. And God says, you've heard that I'm slow to anger, but I will by no means clear the guilty. So yes, my people were guilty. And exile under your might is part of the way I am dealing with them. But Nineveh, I cannot ignore how you have mistreated those who were vulnerable and weak and I must now deal with your guilt. God is jealous and avenging and wrathful. First time we hear that, we may not like it. The hundredth time we hear it, we may not like it. The thousandth time we hear it, we may not like it. But gosh, wouldn't we hate living in a world where people could say, I am so powerful, I can treat anyone however I please, and there is no accountability for me. None of us want to live in a world like that. And God says, the reason you can't fathom living in a world like that is because I made you in my image and I am a God who is full of grace and compassion and I'm slow to anger but I cannot turn a blind eye to that kind of guilt so these themes don't just pop up in Exodus 34 
or in the book of Nahum, but they continue into the New Testament. The New Testament finishes out the story of the Old Testament, beginnings back in the book of Genesis, enslavement and Exodus, and then after that comes the division of the kingdom into Israel and Judah, centuries of rejecting God, exile, and then after exile, restoration. God brings his people back to the promised land. And there, through the prophets, he begins to say, a greater redeemer is coming. We hear Jesus speak of that. He's saying, I'm the ending of that Old Testament story. In Luke chapter 11, verse 32, he talks about a message of judgment that should lead all people to repentance. He says, the men of Nineveh, those that Jonah preached to, they heard this message about a God who is full of grace and they repented in Jonah's day. They will rise up at the judgment. Here's Jesus saying, God is jealous. He is an avenging God. He is wrathful. A day of judgment is coming and the men of Nineveh will rise up in that day with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now something greater than Jonah is here. This generation, who is Jesus talking about? Well, he was speaking in this context to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were saying, you know what? We're so good at rule keeping, nobody can find us guilty. We don't have anything to answer to God for because we're great at rule keeping. And here's Jesus saying, Repent. God invites all people to come to him. Mighty, ruthless oppressors like those who live in Nineveh are invited to come to him and take refuge in him. Moral, religious rule keepers who are arrogant toward God. He invites us to come to him. Gentiles and Jews. All nations are invited to come to him in repentance. That's what Jesus says listen to how this pops up in the book of Romans chapter 12 we were looking at this in our gospel and government series recently here's the apostle Paul saying beloved Christians don't ever avenge yourselves we are not to be a people of vengeance why leave it to the wrath of God This is something for God to carry out. He's the only one in whom compassion and justice occur in such a combination that we could trust him to carry this out. Leave it to him for it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will do the repaying, not you. My people aren't to be a people of wrath and vengeance. My church is not to be the kind of church that pulls out a sword to execute people and punish them in that way. I've given that sword to the state. Well, that's part of another sermon series, right? Here's the next verse of Romans 12. Instead of taking out vengeance, to the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. I'll be the wrathful one. I will carry out judgment. 
I will decide who is guilty and who is not. You see what the New Testament is telling us? If we embrace Jesus, then we will embrace what Jesus says about the judgment of God. And we will embrace everything that Scripture says about God's wrath. And what that will lead us to is greater repentance and humility before God. We, we won't be like the Ninevites who say, we're so powerful, nobody can call us guilty. And we won't be like the Pharisees who say, we're so good at rule keeping, nobody can find us guilty. We will humble ourselves before God when we embrace what he says about his own wrath. And we will deal more mercifully with our neighbors. Trusting God with matters of ultimate justice means I'm free to pursue forgiveness and peace and love of enemy. I am free to welcome the people of the Assyrian Empire into my church. Because God is slow to anger but I also know that he, he won't clear the guilty. He will find a way to deal with guilt. My guilt and the guilt of anyone who mistreats his people. And now we can hear the grace of the text. The Lord is good and he makes a way to deal with guilt. This is Nahum, chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. He knows his people. And who are we? We are not oppressors, too mighty to be guilty before him. We aren't rule keepers, too religious to be guilty before him. We are refugees. He knows those who take refuge in him we know that we are not safe if we're living in the country of our own might and we know that we're not safe if we're living in the country of our own morality we are only safe if we are under his wings and he will be a stronghold and a refuge for any who come to him but a day of trouble is coming And it will fall on all those who mistreat his people. This one day will be both a day of disaster and a safe place of refuge. He will find a way to deal with guilt. So that on one day, there's a day of trouble and a place of safety. Verse 4 hints That God is willing as he comes in judgment even to destroy something that is precious to him. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. These are the parts of the promised land that were most thoroughly watered. That were most verdant and fertile. So... I'll have to show you a picture. This is not Mount Carmel. This is um, not even in the promised land. This is Mount Rainier in Washington State. 
But when you hear these words, Bashan, Carmel, Lebanon, this is the kind of picture that would be in your mind if you lived in the days of Nahum the prophet. And God would be saying, I am slow to anger, but I will not clear the guilty. And I can't turn a blind eye when people refuse to take refuge in me. And I will walk in a place this beautiful and make all the water dry up. I will destroy this place that is precious to me. Mount Rainier is incredible in its beauty. This is the kind of beauty that God is talking about here in the scriptures. All those rivers and waterfalls dried up, all the snow gone from that mountain because it's just become this arid waste region, all those flowers no longer blooming. There is something about God that makes him willing even to destroy what is precious to him in order to deal with guilt. Every image of judgment in scripture is a shadow of a great day of judgment that fell on Jesus already. It fell on Jesus at the cross At the cross of Jesus, God showed that he is good. He showed that he is patient and kind. A God who is gracious, slow to anger, full of compassion. A God who is abounding in love and faithfulness. A God who forgives sin and iniquity. He showed himself at the cross to be that kind of God. At the cross, he made a safe place for us to take refuge in him whether we're mighty oppressors or moral religious people, he made a place for us to find refuge in him rather than in our own accomplishments. And at the cross, God made the one who is most precious to him wither and die. The picture of this beauty withering when God comes in judgment is just a shadow of what happened to Jesus when he gave his life to deal with our guilt. We can take refuge in our own might and power. We can take refuge in our own morality and rule keeping and attempt to endure that great day of trouble in our own strength or we can take refuge in Jesus so that the day of trouble will never fall on us. As we do, we'll be changed. We'll depend more and more on mercy from God and we will be less arrogant before him. And we'll become more merciful toward others. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Take refuge in him. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, the beauty, the majesty we see even in photos of glorious places on this planet takes our breath away. And to think that there is even more beauty and majesty in you and that you laid all of that down to come and be our Savior, even to the point of of brutal execution, not because of anything evil you had ever done, but simply in order to take our guilt away. We give you thanks. We give you thanks for all that you have done for us. May we take refuge in you and become more humble, more merciful as we do. Amen.